song you just heard is Dog of War by the Hell Yeah Babies, which means I'm Nick Bond. And I'm special guest, author Mark Mason. <laughs> hey, Mark, how's it going? Good, man. Did we just hear Dog of War by the Hell Yeah Babies? I love that song. Yeah. Uh, exciting episode today. Some would say we're bringing the thunder. Kaboom. Yeah, we are talking about Kaboom. And Kaboom 2, or K2B22M. Uh, oh, I thought... I thought we were doing wrestling. How wrestling explains the Bible? Oh, uh, well, I said I did say the good book, so that does make yeah. sense. But I meant all my oh, all my notes are on the Bible. But I'll wing it. <laughs> I know uh, I can do it. Uh, that's good because actually we wanted to start off by talking about. So uh, last week, Andy and I did our episode on Money in the Bank, and that is for a lot of people who don't know. Uh, and this is something David and I had discussed previously. Uh, mystery fiction is different than thrillers which is more what money in the bank is which is this kind of mystery idea set in an action context and that's largely what you were going for in your story why don't you tell us a little bit about the story and kind of your ideas when you were writing it i think would be the best way to describe it and best way to start off well yeah i definitely consider it a thriller because it's the whole thing is like is this guy gonna be crucified for saying he's the son of god before his 33rd birthday no 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 no. uh again kaboom oh. exclamation point and um, k2 all right i'll come back we'll do the bible because i did a lot of research um so the book all right i guess it makes sense why would you want me to talk about the bible which i didn't write that was god but i did write kaboom and Kaboom 2. Um, can you repeat your question? What was it? A thrill? Is it a thriller? Yes. So, uh, no, I actually, okay. <laughs> uh, so you, the, the story is, why don't you give us a little bit about the story of Kaboom, the Kaboom universe, succinctly as you can, and then a little bit about, like, what went into it for you mentally when writing it in terms of picking a mystery versus a thriller versus a suspense, which is basically a thriller with less action, but as much danger. Yes, exactly. So Kaboom is, you know, much like the Bible, kind of just a timeless story. It's about a weatherman, a sexy celebrity weatherman. Ruggedly handsome. uh, Ruggedly handsome, ransom celebrity weatherman who was, you know, he has a gun. I was kind of trying to do like uh, if Indiana Jones was a weatherman. But then I said um, the enemy is Puxatawney Phil because he's always trying to get people to listen to an actual meteorologist instead of groundhogs who are, you know, they're very corporate. They're, they're out for profit while weathermen are really just out to tell you the weather, which is pretty standard rivalry thing. So that's what the story is about. And it's him kind of always in a race against time to prove the groundhogs wrong. Uh, well, what- not all gra- groundhogs, but most groundhogs, uh, most groundhogs. groundhog crew, let's say do it for the love of the game. Yes. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, here's the thing. Like, it's also about equality. It's about accepting those that are different from you. And there are groundhogs that do it for love of the game. And they have guns. And they are ruggedly handsome, too. And they will roll with Thunderman at various times throughout the uh, kind of an opposite to tracks, like uh, Turner and Hoop. Buddy Cop. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Buddy, Buddy Cop. Uh, and, of course, you were talking about when you say Thunderman, you were Stan Thunderman Parker, the number two at the beginning of yeah. Kaboom. Yeah, so let's back when we when we first meet Stan Thunderman Parker, he is now has been demoted to the number two weatherman in Puxatawney, Pennsylvania. Uh Puxatawney Phil has become the number one rated weatherman. And uh, you know, he's down in his luck. He was number one forever. And 
he's in the, he's in a slump at the beginning of the first book. He has the yips, and uh, people are people are starting to talk. And when you're a weatherman, like you can you can get one right out of every three. It's just like baseball, and you'll be in the Hall of Fame. But you start striking out a little more than that, you lose the public's trust, and um, they send away all their shovels to yeah. So then there's the other, yeah, the Ten Fugazi. Yeah. So then there's also the subplot. They are people are sending their snow shovels away because the groundhog has declared an early spring. Thunderman, however, and we're not spoiling anything. This is all right there at the beginning, very fast paced book. And he knows that the biggest storm in history is coming to Paxitoni in a few days. And no one believes him because the groundhog said early spring. They, th- they mail their snow shovels to help a third world country uh, in San Fugazi, Chile. And there's going to be no way anyone's going to be able to dig out of this snowstorm because no one's prepared for it. And it's kind of standing a race against time to to prove them wrong. And so why did you pick action over, say, a more traditional mystery type? Is it that you find it, and beyond it being easier to write, let's say, is it that there's a certain appeal to you for that idea of melding action with in this instance comedy but also mystery or do you just does that is that something that you were looking to do for reasons like you thought it would be make a good book or is that something that appeals to you because you're also a wrestling fan not a hardcore yeah no well you're 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 hitting it because it's it's funny and i started thinking about it this week because i knew we were going to talk about in the terms of wrestling and i've always had when i was a kid um, even things I wrote when I was a kid, I wrote this uh, short story for a seventh grade English class about animals escaping from the zoo. And it ended with a big battle where a monkey power bombed a zookeeper through the table. I've always only kind of intrinsically because I grew up watching wrestling, I always need a battle. And you know, it's also from star Wars and stuff. I need there to be the, the action scene at the end of Kaboom was a literally a lot more absurd, almost a battle Royal. And the editor's like, hey, why don't we, uh, why don't we uh, tame this down a little? Came up with some suggestions. It made a much better ending than the Battle Royal that I had originally put in there. But it, it's my instinct, honestly, that things need to end in a big fight. <laughs> that's, kind of, that's where the action idea came from. And you, uh, you trade when, when you write it. For those who haven't, stop, stop the podcast now. Go to Amazon. Look up Mark Masick. That's M-A-R-K. M-A-C-Y-K. Right? I, I should... yeah, correct. yeah, sorry. I thought they were all gone because they went to download it. <laughs> dozens of people have read this book, though. So uh, if you're not among the dozens of people who have read this book, uh, go out and get it right now. You, um, you have a, a certain writing style that lends itself to... Um, how do I put this? Um, easy interpretation of what you're trying to say. It's not that you're writing, you're writing simply not stupidly. Does that make sense? Like you're not writing like an idiot. You're writing in ways that are easily, you're not trying to hide what represents what. And I think that's also a very wrestling thing. You kind of, you play, it's not that there aren't, the mystery of the thing is in the, the ways the ways in which the things that happen to the people in the story change them, but the characterization of your your characters uh, is very 
up front and that's partially like a function of the media of the genre but it's also i having read a lot of your stuff that is something do you think that also comes from wrestling that kind of and star wars too and those kind of like epic style storytelling that allows you to be feel comfortable without uh, with being open in your characterization does that make sense yeah i wanted people to know what they were getting into and it's funny because a lot of times people you know, when you get as successful as I am and you get people start reading the book that maybe aren't as familiar with you, I have people who are like, oh, man, like, that was kind of weird. Like, was it supposed to be funny? I, I'm like, yeah. And they don't know that it's supposed to be funny. So they take, because I write it so straightforward, they get very confused. Like, why do you, I had a girl come up to me and say, well, why do you keep calling the scientist sexy? Like, my brother is a scientist and he's not sexy. Like, and I'm like, like, well, first off, he's a, a meteor. You know, like a meteorologist is a special kind of scientist that usually is sexy. First off, <laughs> that um, is actually uh, so the yeah. norm. The, our uh, my co-host Andy, you know Andy. Yeah. Um, everybody knows Andy. He actually he works at News Twelve, and he was like, "Yeah, actually, most meteorologists are regularly sexy." Yeah, so like, I mean, it was, and it's one of those things. But I was just trying to because you know, uh, archaeology professors aren't supposed to be sexy either, and then Indiana Jones was. So I wanted to like be very straightforward, like. Here's the hot femme fatale. Here's the sexy weatherman. Here's the bad guy. And then go from there with kind of their interactions and as the story changes to be the things you are. I wanted to be upfront that you understood what you were getting yourself into by really laying out, you know, this character is, he drinks whiskey. He's ruggedly handsome. He's, his father is out of the picture. You know, he's a, wears lightning bolt underpants. He's got a young girl in his bed. He doesn't know her name. Like immediately I want you to know who he is. So then as we go through it, you realize, like, man, this guy isn't actually uh, all it's cracked. This life seems great, but it's not all it's cracked up to be. He's a little lonely. No, he's not a little lonely, Mark. He's the saddest person I've ever read. <laughs> uh, I really wanted to be divorced dads like a, a hero. I felt like divorced dads were really kind of... Because uh, Stan Thunderman Parker is also divorced, and it, like, it, it, it hits him hard. It hit him hard. And I think that all of what you do, and I'm going to blow a lot of smoke up Mark's ass because Mark is actually the only fiction writer I like. Um, you do also do a great job with mixing, tr being like we talked about straightforward in your use of tropes, but differentiating that but from like your use of motifs and recurring jokes. And I think I, I kind of want to get into, and this is something that wrestling does well you have certain kinds of characters right archetypes is usually what you'd call them but you also have ways in which um like the way i think about it is like refs constantly being easily distracted in wrestling is a isn't a trope necessarily as much as it's a recurring joke and that it's part of a trope about like you have to that it's a recurring joke that speaks to the larger things necessary to keep the suspension of disbelief and a bunch of other things. But I think you do a really good job of playing with that in a meta sense. Uh, the one that my favorite joke, and we talked about it off air, is uh, every time you in the story use like an adverb or an adverbial phrase, you then say it the next line. So, like, I, I can't think of an example off the top of my head, but it'll basically be like, she, I wonder if she, uh, Stan wondered if she knew she smelled like boysenberry. And then the next line would be like, did you know you smell like boysenberry? <laughs> yeah, I love that, man. That's, uh, like, you know, and that's, you know, that's one-on-one you're not supposed to do that. They teach you that the first day of creative writing class. But, like, 
I wanted to, you know, I think it's funny to break that rule. And if you're just consistent with it, you can get a lot of humor out of it. I always think. Yeah. And I think that it's, it's one of those things. And, um, actually I've written in the notes, uh, it's the the idea of getting things wrong intentionally. It's kind of like when a a good actor is being a bad and pretending to be a bad actor, or a, a, another way to put it is a fine art of being stupid smartly. It's it's very mm-hmm. knowing you. I know why you do good job with it, but your it seems to me that you understand the form so well that you are able to play with those little bits of of work of craft i guess you uh, you would call it to build up this universe within the thing that allows for because you said that some people don't understand that it's like a comedy but to me if you were to read that not even knowing you and the third time you'd be like what is this guy either like a because there are also moments you pepper in which genuine moments of insight so it's like clear that you're able to uh-huh. write with depth and with with layers and stuff like that but you also do this incredibly dumb cl- not clunky but like intentionally awkward thing over and over again how do you and this is something that i i definitely think that wrestling can learn from stories like yours and writers like you how do you balance being dumb enough and that's what i'll call it like to get people let people know that they're in on the that you're in on the joke with them without making it so that you're making booby and fart jokes does that make sense like how do you it's funny because it's 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 wrestling you just gotta kayfabe it i've just gotta commit that if you commit to this writer that is you know stupidly smart or whatever you say i don't break that from the whole way like yeah i'm putting kind of but i'm like okay remember this world because it it's a it's not a first person but you're always kind of filtering it through stan who is thunderman he is kind of stupidly smart you know like so i was just really you got to commit to it uh the same way you would commit to being um you know dean ambrose or something and you just gotta always make, and never all of a sudden be like okay now i want to show all right we've done two pages of this really like funny stuff now let me do one paragraph showing all the words i know for the synonyms for clouds and don't get me wrong that happens sometimes on the draft and, and you're like oh here's a full page where a center man is looking at a cloud like all right i'm gonna i'm gonna delete that because it just doesn't fit with this um voice that you're doing so uh, for you in terms of the drafting part are you when you think about um, writing the characters. Are you thinking about booking them in storylines throughout? Or are you literally like, and this is for you personally, not just like in general, but like for you personally, when you're writing a story, is your method to just have the envelop, like live in the character and have the story go wherever you feel like it going in this world? Or do you have like, okay, I'm going to write this story and have it naturally develop. And then I have, I have to have another storyline to come in that will allow me to break up the feud and have a blow off the, of the feud between these two characters and move it, move that heat for lack of a better term, or actually, I guess that term makes sense in this context uh, to another person. In other words, are you trying to build stars within the context of your story or are you just telling the story of Stan Thunderman? Yeah, I was just telling Stan's story and kind of going. I didn't know. Um, 
I'm, I'm a little two seat of the pants and it's why I get into corners and why sometimes I won't write for months because I don't plan out and like, Oh, well this story lost steam. Let me put it away for a few months until I know where it's going. I just kind of stand. So I was working on something else. I was trying to do a, um, like fake academic, uh, tome about, uh, Groundhog, um, uh, about how Groundhog Day is a corporate holiday designed to manipulate snow shovel sales. And I was trying to, um, you know, get a, and I had like fake case studies and I had like fake interviews with experts. And then one of the case studies was about, and it was supposed to be written in the future, and about a weatherman in Western Pennsylvania named Stan Thunderman Parker, who was the only one who saw it and nobody believed him. And it was going nowhere. And it was just, he was the one that was, he was the thing in there that was good. It was this little case study. And I was stuck in traffic one day and I was like, oh my God. And I just, the first three chapters were just there. And I ran home, sat down, wrote the first three chapters and sat down. That's another way I think why it was able to, uh, why I was able to just commit to this um, voice so hard. is like, it all came very, very quickly at the beginning. Then again, took a few months off because I didn't know what to do after that. And then I, I did know and we, and we went from there. When you're writing Thunderman. Are you building characters once you get to the point where you're just moving him forward and you're just riding the seat of the pants of uh, the ruggedly handsome pants of Stan Thunderman Parker, are you, when you write the characters that will be interacting with him, are you creating a style makes fights idea or are you in your head just like, this is a person that exists in the world that he has to overcome? Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I never think uh, it, that's interesting. I never think when I'm coming up with the character, the other characters, like how will they interact with, with Thunderman, how they interact with the plot. I always come up with the character that I want. Like, you know, I wanted um, the um, sexy uh, graduate student and who was like, you know, turns out to be the do- the dean's daughter. I wanted the dean to be an ex-marine. I wanted um, the groundhog. The be- <laughs> <laughs> so that's, I want, at a certain point, I want to go in the sequel where like, they go to the Balkans and they talk about what they did there, but I don't want it to be the actual Balkan war, you know? They Wait, were- I, I did. That was the one thing I wanted to ask. <laughs> um, they served together? Yeah, they served together. See, and that's, you know what? And that's authorial uh, chain... I didn't mention it either way in the first book. And then the second book, I decided they served together. So that was kind of like... Like, it almost, for again, for people who haven't read it, it goes from you describing <laughs> Dean Green's time in the Marines and the Balkans. And then, like, two paragraphs later, it's just like, oh, by the way, st- like, not yeah. even in, uh, like, Stan also served. He also yeah. served in the Balkans. Literally, it, you go from finding out that Dean Green is a veteran. You knew it, but like uh-huh. what exactly he did uh-huh. from the pre- the first to Stan also being a veteran and being in the same like yeah. group. <laughs> and they literally served together and they solved problems by doing rock, paper, scissors. Like, <laughs> Yeah, so Stan, you know, he repressed a lot of the stuff that happened in the Balkans and that's why it really wasn't relevant to the first movie. He was kind of dealing with the recent trauma in the first book. Um, you know, of his divorce, he was still kind of processing that. But by the second book, he's kind of over his divorce, and he can start to think about some of the other things he did, which was like whatever happened in that Macedonian village. So. <laughs> I was reading a lot more Tim O'Brien when I was writing the second. <laughs> oh, you can tell. Yeah. <laughs> 
sorry guys really you have to read kaboom and kaboom 2 they're i wish dave was here i know uh, thought, dave gave me the nicest review ever like i want like yeah he out. talked about it constantly yeah. before keenan took uh, keenan took him uh god bless dave big ups um but no i think that what appealed to dave and i know what appealed to me was not just knowing you and thinking you're a funny guy but this kind of ability for you to make decisions in your writing and this is something i definitely think that wrestling can learn from is your ability to kind of and i compared it when i was talking to you before we went on air uh cormac mccarthy in terms of your ability to have things that are again like the balkans example i used uh have things happen that are extremely important to the story and move the story forward because of your intentionality as a writer, you do a good job and the story in general does a good job of saying this is the thing that happened and now Stan and his uh, his group of the group of people with him uh, that are with him at any given moment now have to solve that new problem or deal with this new information in a way that feels compulsive. It, com- it compels the, the, the story forward by sheer your ability to decisively push things forward. How do you, as someone who's like, not uh you're not like a type A personality at all. How do you have that come out in your writing? Like what are you just like, what's the worst that could happen? They hate this story and they don't read the next five pages. Or do you go, I think, do you have confidence in where you're bringing the story that, you can just drop this information in and pull it forward. Well, I don't, so I, when I sit out to write this book, these books, especially I'm writing for some, I'm really trying to write for someone who doesn't like to read. I want someone who doesn't like to read. I wanted to give them a book and say, here, I know you can finish the book. People just want to finish a book. That's what I'm finding in these days. No one can finish books. So if they finish your book, they're going to love it. So my point was always anytime that I, as a writer started to get bored, I'm like, Oh, the reader's going to get bored. And that happens to me all the time when I'm reading anything. I'm like, man, I wish that this whole page wasn't here. Like, even though that's essential information, I could have given you that. And they say show, don't tell. Sometimes you got to tell. Sometimes just tell for one sentence so that you can get on to the next thing. So that's what I'm trying to do because I just like, look, nobody likes to read anymore. Like, we all have other stuff to do. Like, all of our ADDs is like, my, I have such ADD that like right now I'm working in a circle around the room because I literally can't sit still. And like, I want someone whose brain is so fried from the internet, from their phones, from all the distractions to be able to sit down and read this book. And that's just what I'm always thinking about. The second I think someone's going to get bored, I say, okay, you're changing this now. And I just move it along. Wow. That's a very direct way to think about things. Uh, yeah, man, I think about the reader a lot. Do you think what informs you more than any? Because like... Why don't we get into your influences? Like, who, when you, okay. how do you separate? No, if you're like Mark Aaron, say, who are your guys? I always want someone to ask me that. Hold on. So, who are you guys? <laughs> well, definitely my favorite book growing up, always, like I mentioned, was uh, God. So, the Bible was my original. That's my go to. Those are my guys Plato, uh, Virgil, all the classics. <laughs> Like, no, like, you know, and it, it, it's, it's guys like you just said, like Cormac McCarthy and, and, and Tim O'Brien, like you, you said it, not me. Like, don't get me wrong. We all know I'm just as good as those guys, but like you said it, not me. I got to be humble. But it's those guys that don't waste your time. And they're, and they show you that 
you can be intel and obviously they're not writing books as stupid as my books, but they are not wasting your time. And also in Kaboom, and I think this is pretty clear, like it I wrote it as like a cartoon. Mm-hmm. So who are my guys? You're like Mac Raining, you know, and Family Guy. <laughs> like, you know, a lot of it's that kind of humor in this. Like I always saw Kaboom as a cartoon cartoon logic and i kept it consistent so in the and this is something we talked about because you also have another story uh, called the ferryman which is actually my favorite of yours uh oh yeah classic the ferryman um that you should build out a mark basic literary universe and <laughs> you do like you said you've created this cartoon world you are creating this cartoon world in terms of world building. Do you, and this is someone we've both read. Um, do you also think about someone like David Foster Wallace, who like in infinite jest, for instance, creates this kind of not the same kind of absurd universe that you create, but that level of, there's a level of Neo, like not, not Neo, like the, it's so for those who haven't read infinite jest, it takes place a couple of years ago now from now but i guess 20 years ahead of where the story is written so it's like taking place in our time but written from the perspective of when we were kids essentially like from the understanding of technology and stuff like that um so he builds this universe based on a real universe in other words you're not writing science fiction he wasn't writing science fiction he was overlaying a different kind of world on top of the world we already know. Is that something that you're, you said it does have this kind of cartoon logic. Are, are you actively like creating the world first or deciding what the rules of the world are while you're going along in the process? And yeah, no, I, I it's, it's a, it's a lot simpler than you think in this world. It, it, it's basically our world, except everyone is, every guy is sexy Every girl is beautiful, and the groundhog. Uh, but not as beautiful as she really. She doesn't realize yeah, that. Because well, like, she wears glasses. Right? So, okay. <laughs> but I wanted it, and, and that's what I'm saying. Was, I always looked at it as very cinematic. Like, let's say this well, again, I keep coming back to Indiana Jones because we never think about how absurd the premise of Indiana Jones is because we've always had him, but he's just a professor. It'd be like if it was a postman. Who, who went on these adventures and got with all these girls. So I'm like, let me do it as a weatherman. And I give them a gun. And they all have weathermen have guns, obviously, too. Um, yeah, people are pissed. So you got to watch I out. know. And I think about that. And I, and I thought about that. Like, should I get rid of the gun stuff on the way out? But it, it's a, they're responsible gun owners. They never use it. Um, <laughs> you know, they're the kind of world where, like, you know, if you're trained, you can use it. I guess it's kind of a Republican view. But, you know, Republican high <laughs> literature, too. <laughs> thanks <Yeah>. mj <laughs> um but like i so that's where the world to me it's it's a obviously a more absurd but i look at the world very absurdly but it's just like if, if this movie if there was a movie where everyone's hot and you just acknowledge like he was totally hot like she was totally hot like that was, like, <laughs> that, that was fun as hell right like that was just fun to be like and some people come up to me they're like man it was really uncomfortably sexual it's like a, a review i get a lot but i'm like this genre is that like I could not. Yeah. No, that. you <laughs> play in the world of, cause I'm very familiar with like noir and, and that style of story because I grew up watching so much mystery mm-hmm. fiction that you just get used to like, 
the femme fatale and the sexual tension of everyone with everyone at all times. It's just like a like a orgasmic fuck fest in general yeah, with that well, shit. Like I, I don't read like in this genre that much, I have to admit, but like I read I've read every Dan Brown book and like five of yes. them begin with a dream and end with sex. So I'm like all right, that's how Dan Brown does it. I'm gonna frame my book. Begins in the bedroom and ends in the bedroom. That's how you know. That's how Thund- that's Thunderman's life, man. <laughs> from hammock, from the hammock to the penthouse. Yeah, it's beautiful. Exactly. Yeah, it's a good, uh, good journey in the second one for sure. <laughs> um, you also do a great job, uh, and I think the stories do a great job of being towing that line of absurdity. Where does that come from? Because I think that's another thing that wrestling would do a better, should do a better job of, for me at least, which is accepting, like you said, you commit to the kayfabe, all that stuff. But how do you prevent yourself from losing confidence in what you're writing in terms of the absurdity of the world? Is there some sort of like process you go through where you read it and you're like, okay, that's a quarter hair too stupid. Or do you like, do you finally calibrate the, the, um, the stupidity? I don't know how else to, what other, like the intentional well, dumbness of this. Well, it's like, you know, you go to the CZW Academy and you do 600, uh, bumps before you get into the ring with another classmate and then you do 600 bumps in a classmate before you get into the ring at the small group of people that are coming to the local thing and then you get to jump off the roof through the thing of glass because you've done it so many times that you have to trust yourself and if you don't trust yourself when you're jumping off that roof you're going to get your jugular slashed and they're going to ban deathmatch wrestling and nobody wants any of that so you have come in that it's just, I don't, I'm not questioning it. I just have to trust that I've practiced enough that this absurdity is going to land. And it's like, if you start to worry, it's the thing you botch the spot. I, I just, you can't botch the spot. You have to go in there. You have to be a professional. Yeah. You have to make it look good. Even if it doesn't come out exactly the way you want it to essentially. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And so to go back to your influences in terms of wrestling, do you have, influences for like characters that you were drawn to when you were growing up like is there any kind of even for me someone who's a huge wrestling fan obviously because we i don't necessarily like the same era that you grew up in like i stopped watching when you started so so did like val venus like yes yeah so yeah of course what about i love like just sexy dudes that everyone can get. Like I knew, like I figured, like you were going to ask if Spider Man was a wrestler, who would he be? And like I'm thinking about it all day, and I really don't have a good answer. But I start then going back to what wrestlers do you like? Like I always loved the idea about this hypersexualized thing in this world where it doesn't exist, and that's where it shouldn't be. Like, and all the kind of like, oh, she was so hot. Spider Man knew he wanted her. Like that definitely comes from hello, ladies. Yeah, hello, you know what I mean? Like he, yeah, I could see him. Him saying that, and there was a lot, you know, the whole, um, basically, you've got a scene full of druids in the second book doing very, like, Undertaker-type uh, <laughs> stuff, so there were definitely a lot of, uh, and like I said, the, the battle event, they got I mean, eventually the uh, release of deleted scenes, but there was just, like, you know, a full-on, like, battle royal between humans and groundhogs in the ending of the original book. <laughs> so uh, along these same, the same idea of universe building, you've read the Harry Potter books, right? I'm not. 
Yeah, of course. Okay. I'm a Hufflepuff. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, but, I know, right? You would think of Ravenclaw. Everyone always says it. But I think it's like a thousand times. Even try to give Ravenclaw answers, and it always says Hufflepuff. I, um, I'm very clearly either a Slytherin or a Gryffindor, and I refuse to find yeah. out which one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think all Gryffindors are Slytherins in a way. It's just a matter of what, what you... That's what... Uh, you know, it's a matter of what decision you make. Thunderman definitely is. See, Thunderman, I think, is a guy who people would think is a Gryffindor, but is actually a Hufflepuff. Yeah, yeah, he's loyal to his friends and all that whiny bullshit. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so uh, we, we like, like I mentioned earlier, we've talked about building out the expanded universe. Um, if you do a third one, do you end the reason I asked the Harry Potter is because they're the first two are kids' movies, books essentially, right? I think it's fair to say. Not uh-huh. that these are kids' books, but they're kind of short almost novellas right they're they're yeah 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 are you looking to if you were to expand this out uh make the third book longer and uh, my other question along those lines are is how do you escalate without pushing it to the point how do you go from uh money in the bank ladder match right um where there's all this stuff happening and you're hoping but the big thing is that uh, eventually somebody's going to pull down the the um the the briefcase and then it, then after that it kind of becomes like well okay so we've seen all of the stuff in the first one right we've seen all the stuff in the money in the bank match the most absurd shit you could possibly see the second phase of those stories ends up being like well how do we have the cash in and you kind of see not necessarily the same a parallel progression between the two but there's this escalation of the idea and then you get to the third one where it's like it go where's that third level do you think and how do you build that without losing the thread by going too high or not changing enough things like when you thought about the sequel and um, this might be easier did you go okay i can't include almost any of the stuff i did in the first one and how much uh, or did you go well i have all this stuff i did in the first one that i want to kind of build on did you go like, which direction did you go, and where do you find, in terms of, for you, escalating a premise? Where do you find yourself in that, when you're in the process, adjudicating what's going too close to what originally happened, what's going too far? And, like, do you feel like it's important to find a happy medium? Or do you're more concerned about making each individual story work on its own without the larger context of the Mark Masick literary universe. Yeah, the MML MMLU. That's it. Yeah. You have yeah, no, it's a well the second book took me way longer than the first book. And it was just it was just coming up with it. Um just putting it down took a lot more time than the first book because you you know, there's that thing. Like there's no such thing as a good comedy sequel. And I really got in my head about that. And um you know, maybe like Caddyshack too, or something is good. But like, <laughs> sorry, but like, um, uh, you know, no. But I think that is a good. You also, I think both books are funny, but I think the first book is much more of a straight comedy. Like even the lines that are really, what the first book is to me very much like a. Um, a like as broad broad as you can possibly get, basically like uh-huh. the. Uh, the the best the way to make a dandelion salad is to blow yeah. your head off of something beautiful. Like yeah. there's a bunch of those like just straight absurd lines in it that are just 
uh, forgive me if this isn't the case, are meant to be punchlines, right? Essentially. No, for sure. I was writing jokes way more in the first book. While the second book, I kind of more wanted to explore his world a little bit. And, kind of, and so that be, basically what happens. I didn't have, I used all my good jokes in the first book. So it's like, you got to write a second book where the humor is going to come from the absurdity of the situation. And you got to actually try to make it more like a book and more of like a, you know, a journey. You got to introduce new characters. You can't do the same thing. So I tried to do, you know, I love cemeteries and I love darkness. And like, that's not what um, Kaboom one was, but I'm like, all right, let's, how can I make it be in a cemetery? I always want to write a ghost story. How can I, how can I make Thunderman a ghost story? All right, I'm going to have him. He's down in his luck, and for some reason, he moved his office to the cemetery, and he's in an abandoned mausoleum. He's still the same. He's still operating, but it allowed me to kind of build the absurdity in a whole new setting. And I kind of, you know, I leaned in a little more on the noirish because I had the uh, wise talking groundhog, you know, in a in a fedora and stuff. And so I was like, pretty clear that we're gonna go. This is a different, you know, if we're watching a series of show over watching a show series like this was a different it's supposed to be a different kind of story as the first one but i also wanted to continue the overall story um you know obviously i could have made thunderman 2 have a totally new enemy and the enemy could have been a jaguar or something and like because that's a perfectly reasonable way to do series but i wanted to have this underlining rivalry between him and phil kind of continue through that so I, I i try to do both and i think i think he succeeded i think he ex- succeeded <laughs> exceptionally well uh again anybody that listens to the show knows i'm not much of a fiction reader but i i think that like you said you build out these worlds you do so very thinly in terms of a leanly i think would be the best way to describe uh, it yeah, yeah yeah your plotting is strong like you build characters that are engaging, but you do so in a with little meat on the bones in terms of I don't know, for instance, like what Stan's mausoleum looks like. I know it looks like a mausoleum. I have an idea in my head of what a mausoleum yeah. looks like and the ways in which he could live in there. It kind of reminds me of Coco. The uh like there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh but it's it's that idea of letting the the performers do their job in the story and letting the setting be filled in by the people who are watching it. So the other thing I wanted to, before we go, I wanted to talk about, uh, so the first book um, is about erectile dysfunction. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Dude, it is. And you're the first person to, to have the guts to tell me that what it was about. It was a metaphor for erectile dysfunction. That I got was, that before they started talking about the yips, too. Yeah, like, you, were like, you were like, yeah, this little book's a metaphor for erectile dysfunction. I'm like, yeah, honestly, that's what, that is the, the problem. Like, you know, spoiler alert, guys. Like, that's the problem this poor guy is working through the whole time. And like I said, I wanted a story for dads that were down on their luck. <laughs> so he's got his other things, and it's messing up his professional life. It's messing up his personal life. And it's just like, you know, it's alcohol-induced. He's drinking too much. Like, it's not, you know, he's still young. He's still virile. He's still got it, I think. But like that, uh, oh, yeah, sorry. But yeah, that totally. <laughs> no, I think, and I, I think you do a good job for people who read it and didn't see it was about ED. You're fucking it's like i had a shakespeare class and you know the um have you ever read um, the merchant of venice you know the part the the shylock speech i had people in my class Uh not understand that's about him being jewish 
And my professor was like, really? Really? Because I said it and someone turned around like, no, it's not. That's really anti-Semitic. And the the professor was like, what? (laughs) No, it's clearly about him being Jewish. Like, come on. Uh, But no, I think people don't want to, are afraid to say something like, hey, no, he just can't get his dick up. That's the problem. Yeah. But for for the second book, it's not about he doesn't have the yips anymore. I think he makes that. No, he doesn't have the yips. And like people are like, man, you know, he doesn't have the yips anymore. And it's like, you can go back to the yips. Yeah, it's already been. Like, Chelsea already saved you know? We're not going to get into this discussion yeah. about Chelsea. We're not going to do it. Uh, but the second book, and I think this is what my favorite part was, is you were really getting into like ideas of voyeur culture and stuff like that without because you were so upfront and you have a character Dana right Dana yeah Dana is a new media journalist and her essential function is to be a commentary on the state of the media yeah yeah hell yeah for me when i read that i don't see it as you being like hooray for metaphors but actually trying to build out a character that encapsulates the kind of person that you is not real but is an amalgamation of enough people that you and i having worked in media and Uh i think both of us moving away from wanting to work in the traditional media sphere Uh have found how do you is that Something that you like have to write from personal experience. I don't want to know if you had ED or not. Or do you? Can you? Do you you think you could write a character like that that exists outside of your personal experience? Because that character feels very lived in. Um, The media, the media character. Yeah, I don't know. No, yeah. Obviously, that was like, what am I feeling right now? How can I? How can I write about what I'm? And that was a hundred percent just from you know, commentary on the world I was living in. Um, yeah, you could, I could probably do it. You know, it's. The, well, the reason I ask is this, um, how do you balance again? This is, goes back to your process. How do you balance being on the nose about a character, right? And like making uh, it feel accurate without being too on the nose and too obvious and giving away too much of it's almost like you're unraveling your feelings towards the new media, the pivot towards video and stuff like that. In, uh, yeah. 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 Um, you don't want to give away the, and you don't want to have the blow off of that feud between you, the writer and new media. How do you, do you pace that out through the story or do you like, in other words, do you know exactly how angry you are about the idea, the, uh, uh, the idea of that character's, having to exist the way that she does. I don't even place blame on the character as much as... Yeah, so, I mean, it's interesting because it, it's not actually really how I approached it. I approached it in that I looked at her as almost like this next level of us and being almost tragic in a way and has to realize that, like, she's not going to give up on this dream no matter what. And she's just going to go as... You know, when she was a kid, she didn't say I was going to be a new media person. She's just like... I realize that this is how you have to do it to succeed. And her and Thunderman are similar in, in, in ways. And for, for the whole thing with Thunderman to me, like, yeah, he hates new media and stuff. But the real thing with him, I always felt is that he's always looking for love. And I thought that, you know, giving the person who is supposed to be everything he hates and kind of like uh, bringing him, 
along, bringing him into the future. He's, you know, he needed to change, you know? Wait, Freelance uh, Meteorology wasn't working out for him? Yeah, 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 I thought that was. I that was definitely my favorite part. Of meteorologist is like, you know, he's trying to, because I did want to have that, you know, you have to take whatever job comes your way, kind of thing. And um, if you end up in a cult that needs a full moon, and that's what happens. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. the other thing is, and I, I definitely think we can we can finish on this. Uh, you don't hate your characters. No, I don't. I'm not, not a single one. Not even Puxatani Phil. Like, you know, I um, I never hate my characters when I'm writing. And, and, and I think that's a huge thing that you don't see in wrestling. I think if there's yeah. one great failure in wrestling in terms of characterization, it's how often you can tell when the author of that character hates that character. And you... Do you have any characters when you're writing them, not in the sense of like he's a heel, but in a sense of I hate writing this character, or do you excise those characters very quickly from your process? No, yeah, there's no, um, there's not a single character that I didn't really, really try to make live. And even, you know, Mr. Sunshine, his old mentor, his mentor is a straight up heel, but he was my, he's my favorite to write, honestly. Like, uh, and there's not like in other words like uh beverly you're not like oh god i have to write beverly or i'm trying to think of any other characters no beverly was the one but you get what i'm saying so you don't even allow characters that make you feel toxic about writing to get into your bloodstream to be no because it's it's a world it's a it's a it's a world that's that world that world doesn't have people in my mind that world doesn't have anyone that i could feel disdain for you know what i mean i create a world where you know, even the bad people are at least sexy, you know? And that's, that's <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of sexy uh, groundhogs you know, in the, this story. The two things that are most important to me, you'll realize you read it, is being cool and being hot. And that's what <laughs> everyone in this world is. So, unless they have glasses and they don't realize that they're hot. Okay, so uh, now that we've solved the mystery behind uh, one of the great books of the last <laughs> quarter century, uh, a Kaboom, and the best book of the last quarter century, Kaboom 2, uh, I have a question I've been thinking about this entire time. Okay, let's hear it. What wrestling character, any, t- any period, any time, anybody, would make the best tag team partner for Stan Thunderman Parker in both the WWE or whatever wrestling promotion and they would be switching back and forth. It would just be like a crossover story where he's part-time now professional wrestler known as Thunderman. Mm-hmm. And also in the story, his buddy, let's say who our buddy, whatever the tag team partner is, has to come back with him and help him solve mysteries and take down the groundhog conspiracy. What wrestler do you think would do the best job on both sides who would win a tag team championship and stop consolidated so snow shovel wow all right so i mean i suspect you would have something along this line so i've been thinking about it all week and i didn't think about this one uh specifically but it's got to be so so stan is a baby face in the worst type of baby face you know what i mean like he's virtuous he's a little boring he always tries to do the right thing and he's almost he's very like cena like He's uh, he's also very powerful. You know, he has a gun, but I think he's the kind of he's a hot tag. You know, he comes in and, and kind of just shoots the guy with his gun, says the catchphrase. He's got a catchphrase too, so I think he needs a mouth. You know, a, mouth, a small little mouthpiece with him. Um, 
Damn, no, I don't know. Maybe X-Pac? Oh, that's good. I like X-Pac. He would tell people to suck it. Because I think, yeah. here's the thing. X-Pac kind of looks like a groundhog. Yeah, X-Pac's little. So he has to be a little rodent-like creature. I was going to say Leo Rush, but like I'm over like modern wrestling. Like, I think, you know, something like X-Pac, he come in and tell everyone to suck it. He gets all jumpy and jumpy while Thunderman stands there looking hot. Like, you know, and like uh, Thunderman, they also, they definitely have like a hot ballet. I would think they have a manager. They probably have a whole stable. Like Thunderman's a very inclusive guy, even though he's always alone. But yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stand by X-Pac. I kind of like that. What were you thinking? Dean Ambrose. My, yeah, funny. That's my answer that. is always Dean Ambrose. <laughs> well, he would definitely exist in the world. He could easily exist in the world of Kaboom. I could write his... I would love to write Dean Ambrose's character because I love his character. And WWE just always never wrote him. What a great character Dean Ambrose is. And never... Ever you, know, you know who writes him very well? The comics. The WWE comics with Dean Ambrose are actually... like He's like a really good quasi-Deadpool character where he's like absurd and does wild shit but like stands up for his friends and stuff like that. Like he's a really great character that I think and I'm not saying but I'm what I'm saying is that you write Kaboom 3. Kaboom, okay. Kaboom, Kaboom. The Kaboom, Kaboom Legacy. Yeah, Kaboom Legacy. The Kabooming. Uh, <laughs> that you include some sort of portal to the WWE universe. That's all I'm saying. Okay. Okay, all right. And then, but Dean Ambrose isn't in WWE anymore. Well, you'll figure it out. You're a smart guy. All right. Uh, I want to call him John Moxley because I have cred and I've seen CZW before. <laughs> let, let, let the record show to all the wrestling fans that I have wrestling cred. I've been to a CZW show before. With Mark Whitehead, right? Mark Whitehead. With founder of WrestleW, Mark Whitehead. <laughs> um, so, did you have anything to plug other than the books? But of course, please plug the books. Start off by plugging the books. Uh, the books are called Kaboom, Kaboom 2. Um, they're available wherever books are sold. And by that, I mean Amazon or MouseHouseBooks.com. Check out MouseHouse Books. It's a really good book publisher. Our, it's run by a dog. His name's Mosley. He uh, handpicked me to be like his one of his first authors. Um, and if you go to MouseHouseBooks.com, we got uh, David Stoes and uh, uh, Damon Agnos. Like, they both have great books, too. And if you like my book, I know you already paused the podcast at the beginning to buy my books. If you like that, buy those guys' books because they're all kind of funny, noir-ish, silly that, you know, just commits to the smart, stupid. Um, that's kind of the uh, aesthetic. aesthetic of these books. Um, and did you did you do tweet still, right? Oh, yeah. I'm on Twitter. You can follow me. What's your handle? Um, it's at uh, Megan McCain. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can check me. That's the character I'm working on. <laughs> you can you can check me out at the next one. It's T H E N one C K S D E R. You can check us out at H W E T W Pod uh, and check out the patreon.com slash H W A T W. You are a Patreon. Uh, have you enjoyed your Patreon status? I'm a delinquent Patreon in that my lost the credit card. I have to re up it. Uh, yeah, no, being a Patreon is great. You always get so here's the thing like. I don't get that many emails. I don't have that many friends. And I know I'll get an email from Nick at least once or twice a week giving me exciting Patreon bonus. Including the uh, podcast Beyond, uh, which Rich and I are are ramping up a little bit, uh, adding new segments every week, including one on J.J. Dillon and on the war between Jimmy Valiant and Paul Jones. That part sucks. Like, not our commentary, but the specific part of the show. I digress. Anyway. The videos are really good too. They should watch your videos. Those are the probably the best thing. They're better than the podcast. Wow, thank you. Um, 
<laughs> uh, yeah, and I guess that's that's it. Thanks again so much, Mark. Mm-hmm.